for March 4th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 244, Die Hard Electrical Materialism. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I'm Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink Die Hard 5. Woohoo! yippee ki everybody! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but uh, turning to another movie this weekend for our question panel, in honor of Jack the Giant Slayer, the gritty reboot of the Jack and the Beanstalk uh, tale. What beloved children's story, what book from your youth, what story your parents used to read you at bedtime at night, uh, do we still need to do a gritty reboot of? Could that syntax have been more convoluted? The first question is actually the second question of the, the, the question of the week. The second question is rhetorical. Because the answer is no, that syntax could not have been more convoluted. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure we've had this question before. I think there are plenty of answers, but, uh, but I just want to bring that up. If we have had that question before, I want someone to call me out on it in the comments to, to confirm me in this thing. Pete, this is episode 244. I think, <laughs> oh, yeah. I think at this point, Wittgenstein would have run out of questions to ask. <laughs> I think the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, right, like does not have that many connected statements in it. Though I would like to know uh, from the archivists, from the Overthinking It podcast archivists, or from those of you who have listened through to the whole catalog, God bless and God help you all. um, When we instigated the question of the week as like like an organizing ritual around which to start the podcast and uh, another organizing ritual that grew up organically, the drinking game, would have us drink now because Pete Fenzel is not first in the alphabet. It's Ben Adams. (laughs) Hey, how's it going? Good. So I don't know why this came to mind, but uh, the more I think about it, the more I want to see this movie is uh, I'd like to see the gritty reboot of any of the Berenstein Bears books. You took my answer. (laughs) That was my answer the last time we asked the question. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) You sunk my battleship. (laughs) Sorry. uh, I'm envisioning here some sort of revenge thriller. I don't know why, but uh, something happens and they've just got to go on a rampage. Because I'd really just like to see the Berenstein Bears just tearing people apart. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, Against presumably the. I can't remember very well whether the other characters are all bears or whether they're just other animals in the books. But uh, in any case, it'd be pretty awesome to see bears fighting other bears and doing whatever it is they do, wearing overalls or whatever else in the Bernstein Bears. <laughs> I, I was going more in the direction of like some cross between Grizzly Man and the Bernstein Bears, mostly because I want to hear someone on this podcast do a Werner Herzog impression. Oh, so it's basically just Grizzly. It's like the other side of Grizzly Man. It's, it's why, why the Bears decided to eat the guy. <laughs> <laughs> no one's going to do the Werner Herzog impression? Come on, Pete. I know you got one. Be the change you want to see in the world, Mark. You do the Werner Herzog <laughs> my, Werner, my Werner Herzog impression is indistinguishable from my Paul Verhoeven impression, and I'm not. So, I'm uh, not doing. I'm not doing mine for reasons that will become clear later. <laughs> um, do, yeah, I mean the bears. You know, Maul. There's a great deal. There's a great deal of carnage. But would it be like um, like Clifford Bear Hunter? <laughs> <laughs> 
That'd be the sequel. I mean, does it does a hero rise to defeat these these ravenous bears? No, the the bears are also the heroes. It's like Taken, you know, where, where one of the bears gets kidnapped and the other bears have to have to go get them. What I am is a bear with a certain set of skills. Exactly. <laughs> I can climb trees. I can eat honey. I can Open steal your baskets. Yeah, you steal your picnic baskets. Uh, Pete Fenzel next in the alphabet. <laughs> I was really hoping when you said it was going to be Clifford Bear Hunter that the Clifford was going to be Clifford the Big Red Dog. Yes, of course. Be, yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's what I thought you meant. Yeah. yeah okay. Good. 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 I'm glad. I think a, 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 fantas- a fantastical universe that's not settled in any specific book, but is in fact more of a of an oeuvre occupying phantasmagoria that needs to be brought back with hundreds of millions of dollars in CGI, VFX, special effects, is the busy world of Richard Scarry <laughs> uh, with Lowly Worm and Huckle Cat. Uh, I want to see Lowly Worm and Huckle Cat on sort of like an E2 Mama Tambien, like sort of sexual exploration trip uh, through the American Southwest. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I, I also want to see. I totally want to see like, um, like uh, Huckle Cat and Lowly Worm go to the, the dim sum in like the in, in Chinatown in like San Francisco, and you see them there, and you see the little like they're pointing out all the things around them, and then like in the next the next frame, Huckle Cat is like sliding sideways on like the dim sum cart, going spicy handed with the two pistols, and Lowly Worm is like jumping out of his pocket and also has two pistols, and they're shooting the triads. Uh, yeah, no, I think it could be a, a John Woo kind of like. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, kind of like a, um, yeah, like a sort of on the road meets uh, meets the um, uh, like face off. <laughs> um, right. Maybe they switch identities. <laughs> and then Seth MacFarlane can can sing a can sing a an offensive song at the Oscars about how we saw lonely worms, uh, lowly worms boobs. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think that it's self evident this movie would be heavily represented at the Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> even because I can't even think of the title of one Richard Scarry book, even though I can think of all of them existing simultaneously somewhere inside my brain. Right, you can see the illustrations in your head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um yeah, and and yeah, it's not like uh Maurice Sendak or something where the individual works are uh, you know, are important. It's the uh, even though a lot of them share a style, it's the it's the whole it's the world building. It's the whole Game of Thrones ishness of it all. Yeah, I also think that I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Oh no, I'm looking at the Wikipedia pages now, and I was wrong. I thought that Richard Scarry was a lot more prolific than Maurice Sendak, but it looks like Maurice Sendak illustrated a whole ton of books that he didn't write or wasn't sort of like a, the main driving force behind. But if you look at just the books that Maurice Sendak is sort of primarily responsible for, I think there's a lot more books that Richard Scarry is primarily responsible for. But they're things like The Best Word Book and like The Best Word Book 2, you know, stuff like that. Like not, uh, not all opuses. Opi. Mm. Opa. 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 Mark Lee next in the alphabet. Okay, so this was mentioned in the pre-show, and I don't think whoever mentioned this was uh, going to use this, so it should be surfaced. So I'm just going to put it out there and also have another one after that. Um, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. Uh, kind of writes itself, right? I mean, like <laughs> a, CG, a CGI rendered, uh, you know, wisecracking pigeon takes a bus on a, on a joy, hell, hell's joyride through the busy streets of Manhattan. Um, ideally, there's a bomb on it as well. You know, it's sort of a, you know, speed meets, well, don't let the pigeon drive the bus. Um, <laughs> this is really compelling stuff. I think you're all with me on this one. Um, don't but let the really pigeon needs- drive the bus any less than 55 miles an hour. <laughs> exactly, right? 
Okay, but um, this needs to be said. This joke has probably been made before, but let's put it on the podcast. <clears throat> uh, the very hungry human centipede. No, oh. <laughs> I want to talk more about the pigeon driving the bus for a second. <laughs> okay, yes, let's do that. Because I mean, I'll be, although it's a short one, Wikipedia does refresh my memory with a plot summary of "Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus," and it leaves the general thrust. What? What? It's a short one, Pete. What are we making fun of? Of the short bus now? No, no, it's a short. It's a dangling modifier. It's a short summary. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, but the book is, it's sort of like the monster at the end of this book, right? Where the, the main character is interacting with the reader. The pigeon is trying to convince you to let it drive the bus because you have the power to let it drive the bus. Right now, now I don't remember, does the pigeon actually get to drive the bus in the book or no? No spoilers. No spoilers. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be awesome for this movie to proceed in such a way that, like, more and more increasingly absurd things would happen that would, like, demand that some sort of action be taken with regards to this bus. And the pigeon is there the whole time, like, trying to convince you to let it drive the bus. And the big climax and you know, the big release of the movie is when the pigeon actually gets to drive the bus. Right, right. It's like, Mr. Mr. President, in 48 hours, the sun will consume the earth unless... We get this pigeon to drive this bus to yeah, the NASA Science Center. Exactly. That's crazy. <laughs> well, if, if you're going to make a summer blockbuster tent pole, it's got to have sequel material. And according to Wikipedia, there are four sequels. The pigeon finds a hot dog. Don't let the pigeon stay up late. The pigeon wants a puppy. And the duckling gets a cookie. I think so we've got, we can be turning these things out for a few years. My favorite thing about that list is that the first three sequels and the original, their titles all end with exclamation points. But the duckling gets a cookie ends with the uh, lovable exclamation point question mark combo. Because it is, that is when the series has jumped the shark and it requires additional punctuation. <laughs> but it's not. I like the incredulity that's built into that title. Like, the, what? The duckling gets a cookie? I <laughs> can't possibly be healthy for the duckling. Ducklings can't possibly metabolize cookies. I guess they eat seeds or whatnot. I don't know. Ducklings probably eat human flesh. I don't know what ducklings eat. <laughs> Breadcrumbs. And, and and now for my answer. In the great green room, there was a telephone and a red balloon and a picture of the cow jumping over the moon. And there were three little bears sitting on chairs and two little kittens and a pair of mittens and a little toy house and a young mouse and a comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush and a quiet old lady who was whispering hush. Good night, moon. Coming from Jerry Bruckheimer, summer 2014. <laughs> Brom. So you can't have a trailer without a bronze. Yeah, exactly. Who'd star in the in Good Night Moon? Uh, yeah, like, uh, sure. Like Elle Fanning is the child going to bed. No, she's even she is too old now. I don't even know who the who the kid actors, the precocious kid actors are anymore. Do you do it as like an adult? Because that's because Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters that picks up when they're adults, right? So could it be like the kid who had gone to bed in the great green room, like has been like years removed from it, and is now like Ben Affleck trying to make his way as like a used car salesman or something, or like, more like a government assassin, and has to go back to the great green room where there's like a really crazy, creepy talking rabbit lady who's still old and still there. And yeah, whispering. sure. I mean, the the I don't know the sort of ritual there's something that that gives me just a kind of 
uh, mentally unstable feeling in the in the sort of ritual of needing to like enumerate and say good night, bid a good night to everything in your room. Um, and imagine someone like that in adulthood. We would be in like a beautiful mind territory or proof territory. I think right. Yeah, someone struggling with OCD. Yeah, right. And it's like, you know, he walks, he walks through, uh, you know, he walks through life kind of Rain Man style, like wishing everyone good night. Um, and, uh, but, but unbeknownst to, uh, but unbeknownst to everyone else encoded within his, his seemingly, you know, crazy, uh, talking is, you know, the, the secret to an unlimited energy source. And so the Libyans want him. <laughs> To to power Doc Brown's time machine, I I, I don't know. I, the l- little old lady has to show up with an auto shotgun at some point and just go hush, <laughs> boom, <laughs> boom. Yeah, it's, that's the, yeah. That's, <laughs> Matt, you're doing a pretty good, um, you know, trailer guy voice, aka that of Don LaFontaine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to quickly remark that um, uh, in doing some research on the late great Don LaFontaine and sort of that inner world uh, trailer voice thing, it has decidedly gone out of style, the voiceover in a trailer. Um, you know, it's much more so communicated by title cards and just like the action of the, uh, of the movie itself. Right. Um, I, I'm, I don't know if other people have noticed that or have any ideas as to why this is happening. Well, lo- maybe because Don LaFontaine died and can't do these anymore. He was the last. He was the last uh, man holding the line against the knight, and then he, he fell off his post. And um, yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I mean, well, why did? Well, let's 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 think. What do we do know about the the trailers? We know that they used him a lot. They used him to trailer a whole ton of movies. So why would you use the one person to trailer all of those movies? Is his voice really that much better than like the second or third guy's voice? Probably not. Like they, in terms of just ser- being serviceable for the purpose, right? Independently of like personal brand or familiarity, um, he can't be so much better than the next best guy that he's worth the extra expense, right? But doing so, doing voiceovers, right? There's more than just the quality of the the voice of the particular performer. There's also their kind of reliability and track record and reputation for professionalism. So like Don LaFontaine was, was sort of a one take kind of guy and his, you know, no joke, his reputation was that he could just, you know, sit down, rattle off, you know, 20 movie trailers, get up 45 minutes later, you know, cash his check and, and not come to work for another week. Though I, <laughs> though I understood that he did. I mean, he worked a lot. I think he may have come come into the booth every day or something like that uh, during the busiest, during the busiest part of, of his life. You know, he was like the hardest working man in voiceover or something like that. But, but there's more than, I mean, there's more than quality. There's a sense of like reliability, you know, that is something that's not talked about out with actors a lot, but that's kind of an important aspect in how actors get get jobs and why actors who develop reputations as being a problem uh, don't work as much as actors who are known as being uh, easygoing or sort of delivering the goods on time and on budget. Now, this is why I don't see Lindsay Lohan in movies so often. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, no, it was, that's actually just because... Uh of no you're right that's right. Yeah. I, I like I, I don't have it in me to make a Lindsay lohan joke like i just don't i'm sorry <laughs> i apologize to everyone but it's just not in my heart anymore um so yeah it's, it's just that there's nobody who is as efficient as he was to get in there and to do the same thing that he was doing um or was it that his his efficiency kind of kept alive something that probably would have been fading out anyway 
Well, it's it's possible. It could be it could be something that waxes and wanes. You know, maybe it's just a stylistic thing that comes in and out of fashion. So, you know, maybe ten years from now we're going to have a new in a world guy. It's also worth it's also worth pointing out that prior to the in a world. Uh, movie trailers were quite different, right? They weren't sort of dominated by the voiceover. It was a lot of, um, well, it sounds familiar, right? You know, big splashes of uh, of title cards, big text saying that you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, wide ranging adventure in the West or whatever it was they put on reefer madness. Watch these <laughs> teenagers like go wild. Pre Lafontaine movie trailers <laughs> seem really prosaic to me, right? They just they describe way too much information. And they just sort of they take a lot of pauses. The momentum isn't really there. You know what I mean? Like even if the one that I always, I always recall about this is the trailer for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. If you want to look that up, um, it's just so deliberate in the way that it addresses the information about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure that you want to like. Uh, <laughs> Lady, it's ladies and gentlemen, there is a film. It is called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm, I'm going to play it in the background now and see if there's any lines that I can repeat for you that are like particularly. Its protagonists are Bill. What well, I, f- I feel like most trailers now the exposition all comes from dialogue that's in the movie. You know, they have the movie, the characters explaining in the movie what's going on. So I'm wondering, has this trend bled into scripts at all? Is it make? Does it give us more exposition in scripts? Because they're like, well, we need something for the trailer. So we don't have to pay this guy who's not as good as Don LaFontaine to come into the booth. And <laughs> well, just in takes. general, I mean, I, I've heard that in the movie, you know, industry, you know, in the industry, I don't know how true this is, but uh, it definitely feels true that, you know, you're, you're trying to pitch a movie and the, the response is, well, I can't see the trailer for that. You know, no one's going to go see that movie because we can't pick, cut a trailer. It's true. So, I you mean, know, if people, are, if people are writing a script, they're going to stick in some lines that, oh, that'll sell this because then, then they'll be able to see this, this line in the trailer or whatever. Yeah. I mean, marketing does sign off on movies before they get, uh, before they get funded. The marketing departments of, of studios. How you doing, Pete? Anything good from the Bill and Ted trailer? <laughs> <laughs> we now return you live to our correspondent at the scene of the Bill and Ted trailer, Pete Fenzel. Apparently he went off microphone in order to do it. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I was on mute. It's like, finally, a motion picture so vast and so magnificent that it takes 7,000 years. And it's like, whoa! And this, the, the, the use of the word vast, I feel like, is something that they wouldn't have gotten away with or they wouldn't have chosen to do now. It seems like they're trying to describe it in a very serious manner to people. Um yeah, yeah, and that's like the first. That's the first like fifteen seconds of the trailer is just like this is a movie that's very large and impressive that you're going to see, uh, <laughs> and you don't really you don't really see that as much anymore. There's something refreshing um, about that, however, isn't there? Yeah, it's like hey, it's like all the friends that you have. I don't know if you guys have friends like this, but I have friends like this who complain that whenever they encounter advertising that doesn't like straight up and like uh, outline the specific benefits of the product and why you should buy it, like who sort of like live in a sort of. Uh, Kind of like a Luddite rejection of the existence of branding. Yeah, of brand <laughs> like advertising. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're just like, it can't possibly do anything, right? Like people, the same kind of people who deny the existence of fiat money. It's like, well, a dollar can't be worth anything if it isn't based on anything. It's like, well, an advertising can't make you buy anything if it doesn't tell you why to buy it or what the product is. Like, duh. You know, like, uh, which is, of course, false in both counts. But it reminds me of that. It's like we want to reassure people that we're advertising a, a motion picture that they can purchase a ticket to and watch when it comes out. I thought when oh. you said fiat money, I thought you were talking about the small European cars. 
That's where they keep it. They keep it in, in those cars. That's why they have so many of those cars around. Split it up. <laughs> uh, well, so uh, we we um, uh, we so the subject we plan to talk about in this podcast is the fifth installment in the Die Hard trilogy. Yippee Kaye, everybody! <laughs> uh, where they actually do use the they do use the f word, uh, unlike Die Hard, uh, unlike Live Free or Die Hard. Um, this is a good day to to die hard. Uh, about which the best thing uh, I can say about it is that it was preceded by the Fast and Furious Six trailer. <laughs> I have a lot of good things to say about it. One of them is that the last scene has no dialogue and ends in a freeze frame, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and the second great thing about it is that it's sort of like watching somebody who's really good at it play Time Crisis for an hour and a half. <laughs> if you ever done that, like that's impressive because because one of the things <laughs> one of the things that keeps happening in this movie is like. Uh, I don't know. I've heard the movie described as four 15-minute long action sequences separated by the time it takes to walk from one to the other. (laughs) (laughs) That is not inaccurate, except that one of the action sequences is 20 minutes. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And so, like, the the way that these sequences, you know, proceed and heighten is often through, like, more and more outlandish juxtaposition of physical objects, right? Like, it'll be like, I think the best part of the movie... Is probably when the truck goes off the bridge and hits the giant concrete cylinder that's being carried by the other truck. Because everybody in my theater went, whoa, when that happened. Uh, by the oh, way, blanket spoiler alert for a good day to die hard. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this was a movie. Like There were audible reactions in the audience in the theater that I saw it, too. And I saw it today. I saw it on a Sunday afternoon, uh, two or three weeks after, re- after release. So, you know... That's that's saying something because usually the like the real enthusiasts have come and gone by that point. Yeah, no, this is a movie that that engages your enthusiasm and very few of your other faculties. Right? <laughs> it's like, this is a movie that wants you to be excited, like your um, critical faculties or even your your sort of erotic faculties or uh, anything like certainly, that. Certainly not your faculty of memory of the previous diehards with which it bears almost no relationship. Uh, no, there right? is. Like, I mean, yeah, the, except for one kind of stunning homage involving a person falling off the build, a building. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Like, uh, that is actually kind of an amazing thing. And just for the sake of, I mean, we said we gave a spoiler warning, because let's bring that up, because that's actually interesting. Sure. That's actually an interesting part of the movie. Is there, and I'm not going to say who the villain is, because it, there's nothing to be gained in this conversation by saying who the by villain re- is. Yeah, by revealing that, right. Yeah, yeah, because it is, it is, the big bad in this movie is somewhat of a surprise. But uh, the big bad is at one point flung off of a, is he flung off of a building, or does he, oh, he's thrown off of a building. He's thrown right? off of a building by, by uh, John McClane Jr., yeah, yeah, John McClane's son is played by some sort of biological clone derived from Sam Worthington. Tosses him <laughs> off of a building. I shouldn't say that. He's probably a very hardworking guy. We should probably figure out who this guy is. Um, yeah, and but anyway. I mean, and, and it's fun. I mean, they in the petri dish they mixed the donor semen of Sam Worthington and you know Channing Tatum and probably one or two other people. Yeah, the guy is named Jai Courtney, uh, and you may know him from such things as Spartacus. I believe he's in that uh, War of the Damned, the TV show, uh, and and that's pretty much it. Um, he's in Jack Reacher. He's sort of coming on the scene right now. It seems like, and he's not. Uh, he ba- on, uh, yeah. You know, he's not bad. 
No, he's good. I actually, I actually think Bruce Willis and Jai Courtney do great jobs in this movie. Yeah, uh, and it's and yeah. he he has the thing that 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 Bruce Willis has, which is the like the kind of the soulful hangdog. Uh, the kind of the soulful hangdog air, you know, that comes out at, at certain moments of like, you know, taking a breath or reprieve. Not that there are a ton of those in the film, but uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's also it makes me think of uh, when I heard about in Armageddon when Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck were both in Armageddon. Bruce Willis would like coach Ben Affleck by way of kind of incredulously insulting him being like well dial it down like pull it way back right like <laughs> you're an action hero for goodness sake like you know you know you gotta you gotta pull it back jai courtney gets that uh, i do love the dialogue that they exchange but um which is where they do their character development which is done in this tone of like contempt for the fact that they have to do it <laughs> right they- conversations about being father and son in this movie and it's like you were never there for me dad he's like well i was too busy doing other stuff saving the world i guess it's like yeah right huh how are we gonna get through this i don't know let's go get in that truck okay you know like (laughs) and it's funny because it's like you could tell that they know that they have to have this conversation for the movie to seem plausible um but they kind of they're kind of skeptical that it's going to make the movie seem plausible or at least they they know that you want to get it i don't know it's a complex thing but anyway the big thing we're talking about is that john mcclain jr hurls the big bad of the movie off of a building i think by his lapels or something um and the shot of him falling and looking up at the camera is taken directly from alan rickman spoiler for die hard if you haven't seen (laughs) Uh, alan rickman's similar fall near the end of die hard it's done in slow motion it's framed very similarly and the look on his face is is very very similar and it's it's a kind of a big laugh moment and pretty awesome um but yeah, but other than that, there's not much in the movie that has anything to do with Die Hard. Um, other than, I guess, the whole underlying thing about the bad guys have a plot that you think is really complicated, but it turns out to be a very simple plot that has a lot of misdirection involved in it, right? And like that's kind of like the hallmark of a, of a Die Hard plot is that like the bad guy isn't half as clever about what he wants as you think. And everybody assumes the bad guy wants something complicated. But really, the bad guy wants something simple, and he's using complexity to misdirect people and to give people the wrong idea about his intentions. And there's this sort of tone of umbrage that everybody adopts about that, right? When, when they say, and the line that, that represents this sense in the, the film is, oh, it's all about money. Isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's just all about money. That's it. You're just trying to get money. And sort of... Um, and and this is the way that the our our heroes have of reflecting on the impoverishment of uh you know evil intentions right the, doesn't doesn't Bruce Willis follow that with like it's always about money like Bruce Willis sort of says that off the side well he like, sort of le- i mean he's sort of learned from uh uh die hard with a vengeance right like that 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 this is what it this is what it's about yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. They are they are bemoaning. Yeah, because because um, John McClane Jr. is a, is a spy. He's a special forces or spy guy. He's CIA, right? Yeah, he's CIA. Um, yeah, but he, he doesn't. Knows. I mean, he doesn't really resemble the CIA that you see in Argo or the CIA that you see in Zero Dark Thirty, or for that matter, uh, the CIA that you see in the oft neglected masterpiece Spy Game. 
No, he's more of like an intelligence agency that the Pierce Brosnan Bond works for, sure. where it's like people whose government job it is to shoot a lot of people kind of indiscriminately and then do a bunch of complicated things with no rules, right? Like that seems to be part of what they're doing. Although they do have they have a mission and they do have he has a boss sort of. The um, thing I, I mean, the thing I liked about Zero Dark Thirty was that the bureaucracy of kicking ass. <laughs> do, you know, you, do you know what I mean? It's like there's this division of labor within within ass kicking, you know, and it's it's you can sort of um, make a metaphor to uh, to the body, right? Like there is a brain that evaluates which asses to be kicked are are to be kicked, right? There are eyes which locate, search out, and locate the asses to be kicked, and then there is a fist, or uh, I suppose a foot, to to make the thing not a. Uh, uh, not totally incomprehensible. There is a foot, uh, you know, which embeds itself in the posterior of the ass to be kicked. Right. This is like this is bo- Plato's Republic, like uh, <laughs> Confucius and the and the Book of Timothy, like all wrapped up into one thesis. Right. Like the idea that like we take the human body, we develop, we break it down into its component parts, and then we create literatures and social constructs that imitate the way that the parts of the human body work together with each other. Right. Like. Um, and that's and that's the way it should be. There's like a perfection in that. Right? But the thing, I mean, the thing that that um, the thing that stories do is that they condense a lot of these functions into single characters, so that we can follow one one human through a lot of the sort of dramatic functions of a story and through a lot of the plot functions of of ass kicking. So and in that case, then what is John McLean Jr. the head and John McLean Sr. is the heart? Is that how this works? Yeah, I guess they're both a foot. Almost like, almost like they're a, a, a kind of foot clan. Yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> yeah. It, I do love how they come to, they reach a sort of level of peace with the role of killing the bad guys. Like, Scumbags. I, the, I mean, that is to, right. Like that is to say, this film. Uh, one of the things about this film is that, and and like I said, it's it's not a film that that I liked, and <laughs> you know, it, it's a film that I enjoyed in in certain respects, but not one that I that I liked. Um, and I had, I you know, I don't know. There was that. There was that. Do you remember after um, after the Oscars? There was that post on Jezebel about the kind of just uh, sexism fatigue. Like I can you know, I I thought this was this was one of the people who thought the uh, the uh, that the Seth MacFarlane stuff was sexist. Um, and but said I can't just I can't even bring myself to like comment on this because I'm just sort of fatigued from this kind of commentary. I had I had sort of action fatigue uh, I, after watching this after watching this movie. Though I am really stoked for Fast and the Furious Six. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a little bit more gas in the Fast and Furious franchise, right? Than there. Huh. I see what you did there, Pete. I see what you did there. Well, what is it about Fast and Furious Six that has you excited, then, Matt? I mean, is it the presence of The Rock? Is it like uh, is the present? Is it the return of Ludacris to the franchise, which I believe is happening? Uh, I mean, what is it? Is it is it the sense that the arrival of The Rock and Ludacris, like? So there's a, there's a phenomenon that I, I developed in college uh, called party pressure. I'm not sure if I've ever explained it on the podcast before, but it's like the rate of people le- coming to a party uh, over the rate of people leaving a party, right? Right? Or is sort of like a, a, a sort of a measure. I guess it's not a. I think it's a ratio. Yeah. 
Um, and then it's just, so regardless of the absolute attendance at a party, like you go to a party and there may be many people there or there may be few people there. But if you're at a party that has many, many people, but more people are leaving than arriving, there's sort of a feeling that that is associated with that. And I refer to it as party pressure. Right. Um, the party pressure is lo- is falling. Right. Uh, the barometer is low. Uh, you know, even if it start the barometer is going down, even if it starts from a high place, that still means you're more likely to get precipitation. I feel like the party pressure of the Fast and the Furious franchise is very high right now. Sure. Because there's the people who are coming to it. Right. People are arriving back at it who have left previously or uh, people are being drawn to it or attracted to it. And that makes me excited about it. Yeah. Uh, I don't I mean, know. What about you? What, what makes you excited about Fast? I don't know. There's a sort of there's a sort of. Um... Uh, there's a sort of relish in in the ridiculous in the ridiculous moments, and a you know, and there's a kind of a grace. I don't know. It it's it's funny. I mean, the the dichotomy between the sort of over engineered bodies of Vin Diesel and The Rock, and the over engineered automobiles. Um, like the automobiles have this this sort of uh, exotic grace and have this kind of like uh, you know I, uh, dexterity and and virtues that are associated with being sort of fast and agile and responsive, whereas you know the rock is sort of lumbering. The rock and Vin Diesel are are sort of in the Sylvester Stallone model of being like lumbering and uh, and relatively slow. Um, so it's good that they have cars because it shores up their one weakness of not being able to move fast. Right. Yeah, and not not having sort of <laughs> yeah, and sort of lacking right, like uh, lacking for all their brute force, lacking a certain amount of dexterity or sort of lightning fast uh, reflexes, right? Like response time or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and that 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 like uh, I don't know. That was um, th- that's sort of exciting to me, and also uh, also like the the fact that. A lot of uh, the trailer of Fast and Furious Six looked like it was shot on on cranes or on tripods or I mean, or not really on tripods on moving cameras, but cameras that were moving on something mechanical so that they produced a, a, a smooth shot. Whereas a lot of the the movie that you saw afterwards was like this kind of uh, born identity, you know, sort of shaky camera, like Paul Greengrass style. Uh, uh, nausea-inducing shaky cam, um, mm-hmm. right? Like a, a lot of that. I, wasn't that whole? Didn't you think that whole car chase was very was very born inflected? Oh yeah, I mean it was really, really influenced by the car chase in the first Bourne movie, which has become kind of a hallmark of a certain subgenre of contemporary action movies. It's in Moscow rather than in Paris. Right, but they they take advantage of the similar sorts of uh, because because one of the things that makes that that chase scene there are two things that make that chase scene remarkable, kind of in the mise en scene, right? Which is as opposed to the sort of way that the eye of the camera follows it. One of them is that it's in Mini Coopers, right? Right. The the Bourne scene, uh, the Bourne car chase, and the other one being that the streets of Paris are narrow and windy. The ones that they take are either like a common are narrow and windy and European. Right, even though Paris itself does have large avenues, but it's like they're sort of ducking. There's a lot of sort of staircases and terrain features that don't normally show up in a car chase that takes place in the United States because of the older roads, right? And so, this car chase uses similar uh, mise en shot phenomena, right? Like the sort of like uh, is that the term? I think yeah, uh, like the sort of the eye of the camera, the sh- the shaky cam, the colors, and it. He picks things that it wants to tell you about what Moscow driving is like, which is that all like it has these giant military trucks, 
right, that are involved in these high-speed car chases and giant industrial equipment that's involved in these car chases that looks very foreign. Um, and, and, that, uh, and that there's lots of railings. There's lots of, like, um, insufficiently safe-feeling highway medians and railings. Right, and there's lots of roads that are kind of overlapping each other, kind of longitudinally, in a way that doesn't feel intuitive to an American city either. Uh, and of course, everything is winding around these big central hubs that you keep coming back to. Right, so I do think that there, but but the 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 influence of the Born Identity chase scene is still so great on the way the thing is shot that it doesn't really capture anything all that super interestingly new about it. But I do feel like there are some key differences. I mean, just the impact of the bodies against each other. Like, Russia and this idea of size is very much part of that car chase. Well, I, um, I was, I was going to ask about that. Why Russia? Because that stood out to me. I mean, all the other diehards took place in the United States. So is it just to be different? Or, I mean, you said it, there's, n- there's not a political plot to it. So I'm kind of separate. Why, why was this movie in Russia and not somewhere else? Or is, it, or is there not a good reason for that? Um, I mean, the, the main reason that it's in Russia... Is that it? Well, it's a father-son movie, right? So that's the first thing: is that it's it's a father-son movie. Right. And Turgenev wrote a novel called Fathers and Sons. <laughs> <laughs> no, the most important thing about the movie is that it's a father and son movie. And then from there, the movie, the there's there's a there's a mirroring that happens on both sides of the kind of moral divide of the movie, where there's a there's a father-son drama on the good side, and then there's sort of like. Uh, Rather than children, they're sort of like careers and politicking. There is a child also on the bad side, but more than that, it's about the sort of like old legacy of the Soviet Union, the new legacy of of Russian oligarchs, right? And I think that the parallel that they're trying to draw is it, it's a diehard parallel, right? And the diehard parallel that we described before um, is you think the thing is new and fancy and complex and requires an education, but it is in fact just old and happens the same way it's always happened. And if you try to, you know, overcomplicate things, you will lose. And so the idea is that the Russian oligarchs who are working now, right, um, are really not that dissimilar from the Soviet strongmen who were working in the 80s. And then it takes this spy guy who's like a born identity kind of character, John McClane Jr., and says he's not really all that different than the sort of burly, no-nonsense action stars of the 1980s. Right. And the whole film revolves around a climactic scene in Chernobyl, right, which is like a – more than anything else is like a symbol of the destruction of the 1980s, I guess, or like of that whole era coming to an end. And, become, and not only coming to an end, but coming to an, an end in a way that is – permanent and cannot be returned to the idea that that all of the legacy of die hard and everything around die hard is like radioactive fallout is kind of vaguely suggested by the spirit of this movie um i mean it's yeah well presumably also you can stage a fight scene in chernobyl and blow up buildings without any innocent bystanders to to worry about you can just blow up whatever you want oh well there's i mean i don't know there's plenty of collateral damage that of course being an action movie it doesn't dwell on but when they're you know when bruce willis is spoiler alert like driving his you know mercedes land rover right like on top of the russian traffic when he just pulls (laughs) on top of the other cars and just drives over them like they were so many you know i don't know rocks in the desert that he was dune buggying over, right? Like you have to imagine there are women and children being being squished underneath. But I, I mean, I was struck by I was struck more than more than anything in this movie by the sense that in action movies, action movies are about uh, about private business being transacted on a public stage. Um, and that, like, uh, you're you're a good guy, you're a bad guy, or you're a bystander, which is to say, you're kind of irrelevant to the. 
um, you're kind of irrelevant to our, you know, to our concern. Um, but the, I, I don't know, Chernobyl, I mean, like Chernobyl here is, is reduced to, um, is reduced to one building, you know, it's like a level, it's like a level in, in modern warfare, you know what I mean? More than it is like, uh, um, uh, more than it is like a, uh, uh, you know, whole town, right? Which is, I guess, what it was that the when the reactor went bad, it was this whole place. Um, so, uh, right, like the the sense I got of Russia in this movie was the sense of of um, confinement, and and that Russia was being. Uh, whereas in the first, the first few diehard movies, the idea of like a tall building or an airplane or I don't know, wall street or something, there's something aspirational, uh, about all of those in this Russia was like the, the first, the first salient fact that's demonstrated about Russia in the movie is that the traffic problem is, is bad, you know, worse than any American city in the, like the ring road around Moscow. Um, and then, you know, and then there's a lot of like stuff of confinement, people being sort of pent up uh, in buildings, pent up in in prison cells. There's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, and uh, pent up things pent up in vaults, um, pent up in, in helicopters, pent up in in automobiles. Right. And like as opposed to that sort of American sense of like vast landscape and the, you know, the the horizon line in you know, Western stretching from one end of the cinemascope frame to the other. And this, this sense of like vastness, this sort of horizontal vastness, uh, you know, I don't know this film for a, for a sort of action blockbuster, it wasn't shot in widescreen, you know, it was shot in the sort of standard, um, standard movie ratio, which is wider than your 16 by nine television, but not as wide as like cinemascope or not as wide as the, I think two, three, five frame that you're used to seeing in the, all the expensive and all the expensive movies. There's this sense of, of sort of stasis uh, and of confinement. And I think that, that, uh, yeah, that is something uh, that does have something to do with nostalgia. uh, Like, like Pete was talking about Um, longing for a model of masculinity that is past sort of strong, silent, absent fathers, which are, which are, you know, we sort of recognize the weakness, which is that the kids end up sort of alienated and effed up, but we also sort of admire and kind of wish we could get back to that, um, I don't know, that time when men could get work done, you know, and not like, not fart around in record companies like Jason Siegel and This Is 40, Right. Or Paul Rudd in This Is 40, I mean to say. Um, or like uh, Jason Siegel or Seth Rogen, right? Like, when, when like, uh, not only would you not have to forget Sarah Marshall, you wouldn't have even remembered her in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I'd add a couple of the reasons why we're still sort of going over why the movie is associated with Russia. Um, it, it, there was speculation when it was first in pre-production that it was going to be a Die Hard 24 crossover. It's going to be, it was called, his working title was Die Hard 24 7. Um, and there was, there was speculation that, John, that uh, Jack Bauer was going to be in it. Uh, and then they, that never happened. And they changed the title, the working title, to A Good Day to Die Hard, which unfortunately did not lead to speculation that Michael Dorn was going to be in it uh, playing Worf. <laughs> not to say, where yeah, have you heard? It's this long to, to bring in the Klingon on, yeah. on, on this. <laughs> well, we got to get to it eventually. What are you saying, Matt? Yeah, I was about to say I, I've never heard that phrase other than other than Michael Dorn saying it. 
Yeah, it is a good day to die. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and I guess the other thing about it is that the movie is very much about the story of Mikhail Khodorovsky. Like the that's like the inspiration for the male the main plot of the movie is the real Russian executive and prisoner. Like some would say, political prisoner Mikhail Khodorovsky, uh, and that's and I could almost envision someone writing an action movie about the Khodorovsky situation. The the, the guy, the analog for him is even named Komarov, um, so it's like not that dissimilar. Obviously, the you know it's not the same. There's a lot of differences. There's a lot more machine gunning that happens, um, but uh, but it's a similar situation. And uh, I could almost see somebody like having that in the can. Like I've written an action movie about a Russian you know energy executive who ends up on the wrong side of the political military government and ends up in prison, right? Like uh, let's put John McClane in it and call it a day, right? Like um, that could potentially be the factor. But those are the two things. I mean, yeah, there isn't much to say about the Klingon connection though. There are no Klingons in the movie. Um, as far as I can tell. Hashtag disappointed. Quickly, a search uh, on Wikipedia for a quote-unquote a good day to die traces attributes the quote to uh, a recount of the Battle of Little Bighorn in which Crazy Horse says something along the lines of today is a good day to die. Or he might have said something along the lines of uh, a good day to today is a good day to die. Well, like oh. a lot of American culture, we co-opt it from the the people we've conquered, right? Exactly. Is that evidence that the crew of the Enterprise has gone back in time and participated in the Battle of Little Bighorn? <laughs> oh, that's right. It's not real. <laughs> no, this is real. <laughs> Star Trek is not real. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Hey, guys, can we spend a moment to talk about the iconic catchphrase of this series, Yippee Kaye, Mother Lover? Mother um, Russia. In the Mother case. Russia, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's... Because there's two components of this, right? One is Yippie which is uh, what evocative of the American West and cowboys, right? Speaking of uh, you know the, the American West, uh, and then there is the uh, the curse word mother uh, mother lover, right? Um, so I, I mean, the, the first part of it is pretty easy to understand, right? The um, uh, the, the, the the cowboy nature of uh, John McClane, right? It, it, that's pretty easy. It, that's doesn't require much overthinking to understand, but the mother lover part of it has always fascinated me about like the strength of that particular curse word. And if there's any connection at all to the literal meaning of it, you know, having sexual relations with one's uh, mother, which I don't think it does. There is, there is so much Oedipal business being transacted in this film between John McClane and his son that his, we may as well dub his wife now, Jocasta. (laughs) <laughs> you, know, you know what i mean like we never learn her name i think but th- there is some like he pulls the, john, uh, johnny jr like pulls a gun on dad the first time they come face to face within the first act of this movie it's uh you know oh here's another reason by the way it's it's um it, they're russian it's white it's white people there Right. And this is really a movie about like white people's fights with white people. There is one ethnic minority that that, that I can recall from the film uh, who is the guy who is the guy who hands John McClane the case file in, in one of the movie's first shots. Um, uh, I can't and I can't think of of anybody, anybody else. Yeah, I, I think we talked about this in the context of uh, Taken Two. Right, that Eastern Europeans are convenient bad guy to have in uh, American or Western European centric uh, movies because they're, it's a convenient other to have with, without having to resort to the uncomfortable territory of race. 
Yeah. Sure. And that's another reason why Fast and the Furious 6 is more exciting, right? Like the diversity of the ensemble, uh, mm. which contains both Dwayne Johnson and Ludacris uh, and Vin Diesel. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I don't know. The list goes on. It's a veritable United mm. Nations of driving. Yeah. When the, the choice is notable in the first couple of movies, it was German bad guys. And again, you have this on the surface, it's political, but at the end, it's really just theft, which there's a certain school of thought interpreting World War II in particular, where there's all these political gains and obviously ideological gains. But at the end of the day, they were really just robbing the rest of Europe, that Hitler and his cronies were just wanted all the wealth that they could accumulate. And it's probably a similar argument to be made that that's why the Russians are a convenient fit, because they both have political gains to be going after. But there's also a strong current, particularly in modern Russia, where all the political is really subsumed by financial. That if you know Vladimir Putin is doing something, there's a good chance that somebody's making a billion dollars in the background somewhere um, off of the oil rights or something like that. That it's shifted from a political to primarily a financial gain. I mean, Ru- Russia is a really interesting place and a really, really interesting place to make a movie other than this one. Um <laughs> Right, because it's uh, it's a place where the free market has come to to coincide with with um, uh, with political institutions other than those that we assume go along with the free market, like you know, uh, reliable democracy or freedom of the press or or things things like this. You know, right? Like China is another interesting lab of this. Right? There's there's this great social experiment um as as to to how far you can push capitalism without some of the the societal and cultural underpinnings um and the structures that we think of as related but that aren't that aren't necessary and and just to be clear uh a good day to die hard does not engage that (laughs) dialectic at all in fact, there's a kind of diehard electrical materialism <laughs> to this, right? To this film, where uh, you know anything is is only worth as much as it looks awesome in an explosion. <laughs> <laughs> to say something in defense of the Die Hard franchise, uh, not the franchise, it's just this movie, not the franchise, which is especially oh, no. one and three are awesome. But I wanted to back something up a little bit. Uh, Die Hard One does deal with race. Um, because Die Hard 1 takes place in the Nakatomi building, right? And so the right. rise of the Japanese economy, the presence of Japanese businessmen, the relationship and anxieties where John McClane's wife is going to work for a Japanese company, right? Like, um, with Japanese bosses, like, that's part of the movie. And the way that he handles it is part of the movie. Also, the computer hacker who or the the safe cracker slash computer specialist who gets them into the bearer bonds vault is black and is as you know a genius and that's kind of in the 80s in particular was kind of a little bit jarring yeah there are germans in the movie lots of germans but there is definitely a sense that the outside world is coming in and john mcclain can't stop it right John McClane, like, he doesn't necessarily want to stop it. Like he doesn't necessarily like trying to like dry, you know drive out the minorities from his life. But it's like he has to cope with a world that's changing around him, and not and not just on the periphery, but that is like sort of changing in a way that is striking to the core of who he is. This is not present in most of the rest of the Die Hard franchise, although I have not seen Die Hard two. Um, 
Of Bowman Die Hard 3, of course, you have Samuel L. Jackson, and you have, of course, also Reginald Vell Johnson in Die Hard 1, too. Right. Both- I was about to say Carl Winslow is in Die Hard 1. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how much of what we said needs to be rolled back because of it, but, like, this is, I haven't seen, I, I haven't seen Die Hard 2. I haven't seen Die Harder, despite its awesome title. Um, but uh, other, but other, this is probably the least racially diverse Die Hard movie that I've seen. Um, probably even more so than uh, Live Free or Die Hard, which I don't remember as being particularly diverse. Um, that was more about technology and generational diversity, like not in a familial sense. But right, and that's anyway. why that's why it starred the Mac guy. Yeah, he's Justin Long, <laughs> who's not even acknowledged this movie even a little bit. Um, but yeah, geez. Um, there's a helicopter that has a weight attached to it that spins around. It, has like a, it spins around a lot. That happens in this movie. <laughs> a lot of Mercedes. A lot of Mercedes product placement. I mean, this I think of... Mer- Taken 2 was also a Mercedes movie, yeah. I believe. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I think of Mercedes as being sort of desirable, as being sort of expensive cars, right? Like as being luxurious, but I don't think of them as being like ass-kicking vehicles. But uh, this film did a lot to change my thinking about that. I mean, we've talked before about how a movie like this is made to cater more to the international audience than you might think because there's so little dialogue in it that would be in English. Hmm. Right? So you can enjoy the movie roughly equivalently if you're in another country that doesn't speak English as for language, first language. Um, so maybe why, why are Mercedes showing up in these action movies? Well, what, which action movies are they showing up in? They're showing up in action movies that are shot in other countries that are very low in dialogue and that do well in international markets. seems to me like a play by Mercedes to rebrand itself as a more exciting, sexier, younger, you know, kind of car purchase, action-packed kind of car purchase in specific markets outside the United States, right? Not the way that we think about it. Because um, he's not – Mercedes in crazy car chases don't seem to me to be showing up in – well, I mean, they're not in the Michael Bay movies. That's all Chevrolet. But – uh you know, they don't seem to be fighting in the same ground, right? They don't seem to be in the same battlefield in terms of brand recognition. Um, but it's interesting. I just thought it was an interesting similarity. That and also a lot of rooftop rooftop running chase scenes that, that are, look like they're taken out of the Taken series are in um, uh, Good Day to Die Hard. Yeah, also some good, some good rooftop running in the Bourne movies also. Yeah, true, true, true. You know, some good... There's a whole... There's yeah. a whole... There's like... Fantasy. There's a whole specific body of symbolism that like stretches across all these movies. You could you could tuck them all in there. Um, well, we should. I mean, God knows we're the overthinking podcast. If anyone can tease that out, it's 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 us. But we probably should leave it for a different podcast. <laughs> We've certainly gone into it right now. So we talked earlier about one F word, um, but we, another uh, that being uh, effer, right? But um, another F word just came up recently, which is franchise. So mm-hmm. I, I'm very curious to know. Your thoughts about where Die Hard goes from here, right? We now, we now have John McClane's son here. Is there some idea that this new, what's his name again, Jai Courtney, um, will take upon the mantle of the Die Hard franchise and, uh, you know, can sort of like go off on his own while Bruce Willis rides off into the sunset? Um, or will Bruce Willis keep doing these until he's literally too old to do them? And then, I don't know, what, 15 years from now, there'll be a, a remake with a new John McClane. Well, I think the, the issue, of it, he's already too old to do them, right? Like, and, and this was something I noticed, actually, in... Um Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and in this film that like uh, there's a lot of attention paid more more so than than it stood out to me it's more than I'm used to seeing in action films to the the physical toll that the the repeated falls and you know 
uh, uh, impacts and, you know, dive rolls and whatnot and diving out of windows and, you know, crashing through scaffolding on the way down to landing in the dumpster, like takes, uh, on, on the body and both, uh, John McClane senior and junior, uh, show this. I think the junior shows it, uh, more than he would, um, were Bruce Willis not in the in the movie because uh, he he has to with Bruce Willis there, but there is a sense that the sort of the bodies of the the action stars are aging, you know, are not are not as as sort of young and resilient as once they were, and uh, and that this this kind of thing there's there's been this sort of renewed focus on the idea that this sort of fighting like uh, getting punched hurts and it it sort of takes you out for a second and it it. Um, you know, I don't know. There's a physical, uh, you know, there's a physical toll that it takes on your body. I, you know, that's all an association mark to to what you said about um, Bruce Willis being Bruce Willis being too old. I mean, I think that there is there is this sense of sort of too oldness, and that this even this model of masculinity, you know, a lot of the ass kicking throwback action movies feature you know, issues of aging issues of, of like people getting older, like, um, the expendables. Well, well not just as expendables, but even more recently than that, uh, the last stand, right? right? It's, yeah. So, which so, it's one about. of the big one liners from the trailer is, you know, a Schwarzenegger, uh, it gets thrown onto his back by some explosion or something. Uh, some, and someone asks him, how do you feel, sheriff? And, and he says, old. Yeah. Right? I mean, like they just break it down to that and old, I so see old. I, I kind of wonder if that's a it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Is that that we are interested in making movies about aging, and so we get the we're getting these older stars to make them, or is that the business model has changed where you need to have a bankable star? And hey, we know Bruce Willis is going to open, so now that we have Bruce Willis in our movie, we better talk about his age. Which which is driving it that we actually want to talk about this subject or just that these are the actors we want to cast? No, I think that's right. I think that your thing about these are the actors we want to cast. These are the bankable stars, especially ones who will uh, who will open movies overseas. And it's you know we've talked a lot on this podcast and on our site about the sort of change in the phenomenon of uh, of movie stars, right? We've talked a lot, uh, I think about like the sort of change in, in our sort of model of, of masculinity. And we, you know, we don't have these people, right? Like the, the idea that we have to go to, I, you know, I don't know this, this, this sort of person that I haven't heard of to be the next, the next Bruce Willis. I'm all, uh, Bruce Willis. I'm all for, for, uh, people I haven't heard of before getting their their shot. Um, I think there's less and less of that actually as we focus more and more on on bankable commodities, uh, in especially in feature films. But um, but I you know I don't know. There there's this sense that there aren't there sort of isn't a new generation of these uh, these masculine action action stars. And I think that's why something that so much of this movie feels like. Uh, for all the sort of born inflected um, uh, style, so much of this movie feels like a uh, feels like a throwback, right? Like I don't know, Ryan Reynolds did a did a action movie, right? It didn't do well, a sci fi action movie, right? Like uh, Seth Rogen did a sci fi action movie, it didn't do well. Um, yet we can't, we sort of can't make so, these anymore. Let me let me rephrase my question uh, and get sort of break get down to brass tacks here, right? Um, 15 years from now, Bruce Willis will definitely, definitely, definitely be too old to make another Die Hard movie, right? Okay, mm-hmm. if not 15, 20, however many years, right? 
Um, but somebody's still going to own the rights to yeah. the movie franchise, Die Hard, and the character John McClane, and all these other things, right? What is that person going to do with uh, that asset? Four words. No, five words for you. Five words for you. Remake the original Die Hard. Yeah, that's basically where I was going. That's what they're going to do. They, you, Jai Courtney is not going to be John McClane. No, no, no. no. Uh, I mean, they, that doesn't make any... I mean, I can see them trying it, making another one, maybe making one where Bruce Willis has a much more minor role. But, I mean, if you really want to install a new life for this franchise to start over i don't think you pick up now because the story makes no sense at this point like the story is just so convoluted so many crazy things have happened like they literally can't have people pay too much attention to events if any of the characters in a good day to die hard actually cared about any of the things that have happened in the last 15 years of this time frame they would just be collapsing in tears on the ground right because it's like just like a couple years ago like the whole world almost fell apart because of techno terrorism right like do people remember when john mcclain sent that motorcycle crashing into that helicopter like is that something that people are aware of like no 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 no. you, you want to tell this story you got to start from the core story again and i think that what that means is you take like uh gosh like you know you take somebody you put him in the new diehard you make you do what jj abrams did with star trek and you know, what he's going to do with star wars and what he's going to do with diehard and what he's going to do with the willy wonka and the chocolate factory movies or whatever whatever else they give jj abrams in power to be in charge of the garfield um, movies the garfield movies yeah definitely you could the original diehard is like a to, is totally ripe for remaking once bruce willis retires i don't think you can do it when he's still kicking around cuz he's still pretty vital uh you know in the scene um, but like once he retires, like you could totally do that. Not quite sixty, Bruce Willis. Yeah, he's he's younger than Stallone and Schwarzenegger are. Yeah, um, and and also he seems to be in relatively better preserved, uh, <laughs> and for certain other degrees, probably because he isn't as large, uh, physically large. It takes a toll on the body to be that big uh, for that long. You've also gotten used to Dwayne- without hair for many years. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. He gave up on that fight a long time ago. Yeah, this yeah, man are you who's talking about how, are you talking about Dwayne the Rock Johnson's recent steroid binges and how he's huge now? Yeah, he's cut? huge, and it's it, he looks yeah. too old to be that huge, right? That's because he's on steroids and human growth hormone. Man, that's how it works. <laughs> 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 that's how Barry Bonds hit all his home runs. <laughs> he even I, made a movie about it with Mark Wahlberg about being steroid person, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, no, the Rock is totally roided up uh, at this point. He's gone through the various phases. He got the work done. He got decent work done, and now he's all roided up. Um, Not that I shouldn't say this with disdain, I guess, because it's mostly out of exhaustion. Because it's like, how much more can we get out of Good Day to Die Hard? How much more is there to talk about? I mean, we could keep going. We have to if people need us to. But uh, yeah, (laughs) this is a vital service that we provide. These, but I don't want anyone to pretend like it's even a little bit ambiguous that that Dwayne, the Rock Johnson, (laughs) has been like juicing himself uh, because he certainly has. Uh, yeah. Um, well that, I mean, I, I had that, I had that thought that like, it's gotten, it's gotten a kind of to the point of, of parody. And actually like this, this is kind of with my point of, of, you know, I don't know, you don't have the, you don't have the, the Bruce Willis's. We're not minting the Bruce Willis's anymore. Um, he, Vin Diesel, right? Like, and, and now, of course, I'm talking about Fast and Furious 6 again. Like, it, they're associated with, with kind of parody, with a sort of, like, burlesque of masculinity, in, in, uh, in my mind, anyway. Especially because of Dwayne Johnson's association with, like, being the rock and, and doing professional wrestling, right? That 
that this is like we kind of can't we kind of can't withstand um we kind of can't withstand this this model of of ass kicking american masculinity without uh without it being a joke somehow and i you know, i mean the superhero movies have really taken over the genre I mean, and then the good thing about the superhero movies is that younger people will watch them because there's an excuse, right? It's like there's an excuse. Uh, there's a there's a paper thin rationalization for why it's okay to let your kid go see, you know, a, a superhero movie where there's just as much violence as there might have been like ten years ago in a cop movie, right? Like you know, if you know, uh, the Avengers is just as violent in terms of what happens to human bodies in it as like Under Siege is. Right with Stephen Skull and well, book. don't forget the alien bodies as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, like I mourn for the Chitari dead. Yeah, <laughs> and like all of the, I mean, there is a, a sort of bench of people who've done superhero movies who, if you need to, and all of a sudden the fashion changed changed again, and all of a sudden people were really into like you know eighties cops, and that was like a big thing again. Um, you know, you could put Chris Pine in that movie. I guess like, so, but li- like, and, but let's like let's talk about. Let's talk critical, about the Avengers, but but uh, but Ben, you go first. I was going to say the one thing to remember is that Bruce Willis wasn't an action star when Die oh, Hard was yeah. made. Right? Yeah, that true. when Die when he was he was Die Hard. It wasn't like he was an action star that oh we're going to put him in Die Hard. Um, yeah, he was a wisecracking guy. Die Hard, and- Die Hard was written for Arnold. It was written as a Commando sequel. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, we have a great post on Overthinking It dot com yeah. about and- these different alternate versions of Die Hard. You absolutely must read it if you haven't already. So the so if you if you're going to do a reboot, do you try that again? Do you find somebody that has a more mixed background that isn't an action star? And because arguably that's what made the first Die Hard so good is that it has a sense of humor to it as well, and it 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 gives you the sense that it's a action hero out of his depth. That I really hope that education. regardless of what the answer to that question is, that it ends with a remake of Hudson Hawk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you like to, would you like to swing on a star? Gary Moon, babes, all in a job. Harvey. Oh, wow. That means it must be time for the podcast to be over. <laughs> but no, I want to make a point about, like, um, I want to make a point about the Avengers. Yeah, okay, yes, Chris Hemsworth and and Chris Evans. Yes, the Chris's. But I think they are outweighed by Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, Jeremy Renner, Tom Hiddleston, uh you know, th- th- these guys are doing action and they're not, you know, they're not macho dudes, right? Like Jeremy Renner is, is Broody McBruderstein, right? Like, uh, uh, ditto Mark Ruffalo, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is, you know, sort of famously troubled. And so is Tony Stark. Um, I, I, I really think there's something too like, we can't, we sort of can't do these narratives of triumphalism in, in an America that's been sort of compromised on the international stage in the way that, that we've been. I mean, I would add to that, that all of these men have something that a lot of the 80s action stars didn't, which is that they are sexually attractive to women. Uh, and so like, when you're talking about kind of like body image, a lot of the times people bring up like the burly, the really muscular male body, right. As a, as an object that's used in film, uh, that sometimes it's brought up as a sort of symmetrical counterpoint to the objectified, sexualized female body, when really it's more about a power fantasy for men than like a sexual fantasy for women. Sure. The Avengers are all like sex, uh, sex symbols. Like they're all very sexy for ladies, as far as I can tell. Right. Like, you know, how many of them have made romantic comedies? Yeah. Right? Hey, like, how many, I'm know, into, like a bunch of. I, I know that my girlfriend is into big green and angry. 
<laughs> I mean, if you put it back into when we were like younger, this would be like the Hulk being played by like John Cusack or like uh, or like freaking Hugh Grant, right? Like who, you know, Captain America is is played by. I mean, I, I loved him in Not Another Teen Movie, right? Like, uh, huh. so I, I just think that I think that one of the things you're seeing, and you're seeing this with Channing Tatum, is probably the biggest example of this, is that they've figured out that you can raise the receipts of movies that are made for dudes. Uh, it's like the movie's made for dudes. The dude isn't going to force the woman to go along with him anymore. You can raise the receipts for it by putting somebody who's like charismatic and attractive in a way that brings women in and makes them want to watch the movie. Right. Uh, you know, and I'm being heteronormative here, you know, so gay men too. And, and everybody who's attracted to these guys or whatever. Like, I think that, that one thing you aren't going to see as much of is like, ugly gnarled like you know huge uh roided up male action stars who have like no charisma right like and i'm not saying that any of the people we talked about are like that but like you know we i know brian bosworth like not really that's so bad i shouldn't insult him i shouldn't insult anybody but like the values have changed and not just in a globalizing way i think that they've also changed in like well how can we make this a friendlier sort of genre for people who might previously have been turned off by it and one of them is Make it about comic books so that children feel comfortable watching it. And the other is, like, put, you know, boy toys and eye candy in it so that women are comfortable watching it. Um, you know? And that's probably why Conan the Barbarian, the, move, the new movie, failed so badly. Mm. Um, to recapture the spirit of Conan, which was one of, I don't care if you like me. I'm going to brood and hit things with swords. Right? And it's like... <laughs> And we're going to put, like, the guy who belongs on the cover of a romance novel in it, you know, and, like, put a bunch of horsies and it's just, no. It's- right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Regardless of what George R. R. Martin might think, most women don't want to be Daenerys Targaryen on her wedding night. Well, no, I'm, I'm saying quite the opposite. I'm saying that the guy who played Keldrogo, whose name, oh, Jason Momoa, is, like, too sexy to play Conan in the way that we're familiar with. Because oh, sorry. I thought that he was a stand-in for the old for the old roided out uh, for the old roided out thing. But he's the new. Uh, okay, he he's played, the he's the new hotness. Yeah, it's like they they recast Conan with somebody who wasn't this freak of nature, but was in fact like a a relatively well known sex symbol, right? Like because it's like oh, this way we'll get women to watch it, and it didn't work. I mean, maybe it worked. Maybe the movie did fine. I don't even know. Uh, but I certainly didn't feel like it had any had much to do with the original Conan, which is just such a uh, alienating movie uh, at the same time that it's so valuable. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I'm only really familiar uh, with the Mamouvra uh, <laughs> from um, uh, from the Game of Thrones TV series, where he he was not. I don't know. I didn't think he was super attractive. I thought he was sort of mean, actually. A, I'm a, a little very poor judge of what pe- women are actually attracted to. I just bring it up because I think it's a subject. It's like, hey, there's something here that I don't think I know the answer to. Let me let me BS about it for a little bit. <laughs> hey, that's the whole guiding impulse behind our podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you'd like to join that um, <laughs> that just unending. Uh, stream of BS, you can email us at podcastoverthinkingit.com. You can call 203-285-6401, call or text 203-285-6401, or most importantly, join the conversation on the show notes uh, for this episode. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny... It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve. Yippee-ki-yay, mother...
we just Harvey jinx each other? Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> Harvey, I'm curious to know your uh, your impressions of the new Die Hard movie. <laughs> yeah, that silence says a lot.